Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hey, good evening. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Welcome to all of our friends in recovery. I'm Mike, and I'm a very grateful recovering sexaholic. It's a great honor and really a privilege to stand in front of this incredible room for this chorus of convention. When we were asked to speak, Sherry turned to me and said, I wonder who canceled. <laughs> we weren't at the meeting that they decided to pick us as speakers. And then she said, I bet they really would have been good. It's a shame that we weren't going to be there. So we asked ourselves the question, why us? We're not extraordinary people. We struggle like many of you struggle. It's been very difficult at times for us, yet somehow we've pulled together and we've gotten through quite a bit. We prayed on this for several days before we accepted. We asked our higher power for his guidance. And the more we realized that there are no accidents in the world, we decided not to pass up this opportunity to speak to you all tonight. Each of us in this room has his or her own story, and we all share a lot of common experiences. Our hope is that we can, with God's help, serve as a catalyst in your own recovery, because as challenging as it is at times, the benefits of recovery are well worth it. Hi, I'm Sherry, a grateful recovering SNN member. Boy, it feels wonderful to be among friends. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about our journey. And it's been a a long and arduous one. Um, And I hope it creates understanding and not assign blame to anybody. Um, And the reason I'm kind of Going back a little bit is so that you know where we've been and you know where we are now. And so we were born into a legacy, the two of us, of addiction. And our intent is to break the cycle. My family of origin was chaotic and dysfunctional. And they took the fun out of dysfunctional. And when um, I was the the youngest of three children, uh, my two siblings were considerably older, so I got the the advantage of being alone with mom and dad. And mom had multiple addictions, and dad was physically and emotionally unavailable. And my childhood was really full of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. 
and abandonment. And I remember even doing this, I was feeling all these fears or these feelings, these emotional states coming up again for me. And fear just started to resonate again for me. My parents uh, had a, a very interesting dynamic when they um, had a conflict. They, it was a tumultuous relationship, so they would fight, glass would break, doors would break, and then they wouldn't talk for six months to a year. And it was my job to mediate that, to be the triangle. You tell your father this, you tell your mother this, you tell your father this, you tell your mother this. And the other part of that was my mother was a rageaholic, and one of the things was when she was angry at my father, I was little enough to catch the brunt of it. And and so the outcome of that was to be invisible, invisible. The more I melded into the woodwork, the less I was in harm's way. And I had no voice as well. So the three rules of my house while growing up was you don't tell, you don't put your dirty laundry out, you don't trust because it's a dangerous world. I didn't realize that the, the major danger was where I was at in the house. And you don't feel, because if you feel, then I'll give you something to cry about. So there were no boundaries. They were blurred at best. And what had happened was I became the surrogate wife to my father. Um, and that took the role of being the caretaker. And there's a, a little story that I'll relay to you. I grew up in Brooklyn, and it was a, a row, row houses, if you will, small homes. And, um, of course, my, my parents had a, a kitchen where there was a, a pile of bills. And the stack was big. I mean, it was quite quite big. And in fact, when you walk by it, it was like 52 pickup. You know, it was really like 52 pickup. So um, my job was to tell my father to pay the bill, all the bills. And the heat didn't get paid. And I remember I was about eight years old. And I remember um, spending an entire winter in two winter coats and two blankets in my home because it was my responsibility that that bill was not paid. And <clears throat> that was just one of the stories that I can, uh, doing this, there was just a flood of stuff coming back for me. Mom also... Um, denied my reality. And that kind of lasted into my adulthood. Um, I was kept home from school because I had bruises. And what she told me was, no, you're sick. You have a sore throat. 
you're sick. And if someone tells you something long enough, there's enough self-doubt about that that you begin to believe the lie. And you begin to doubt yourself. So one of the things I did in my my life was to develop a really rich fantasy life. Um, I was of the era of black and white TV when it first came out there. And uh, Ozzie and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver and uh, Father Knows Best were, um, they were the, the pop culture icons of the time. And I saw all these perfect families. And mine was certainly short of that, way short of that. And I remember coming home and um, not knowing where my mom was or my dad certainly wasn't there. And I remember putting two cookies and a glass of milk on a table and thinking, wow, wasn't that nice? Mom prepared that for me. So this kind of led to the belief that I wanted to be rescued by my knight and live happily ever after. I started to believe in fairy tales. And I was waiting for someone, someone, to come and chase my fears away and my loneliness. I was a latchkey kid starting at the age of three. I grew up in Manhattan, and my parents were both extreme workaholics. And their philosophy was that the way to bring me up to be a good adult was that I should be independent as early as possible. So from the age of three on, I got up in the morning after they left for work, got myself cleaned up, and walked four or five blocks to school in New York City, crossing major streets by myself. On weekends when they worked, I would take the subway from Manhattan into Brooklyn. Three years old, four years old, walked right under the turnstile. Never had to put a cloak in. It was great. Some people say I can still do that because I'm not very tall. (laughs) One of the things, because my neighborhood was such a dangerous neighborhood in those days, there were gang wars, there were shootings on a pretty regular basis, is my parents taught me is never show or express fear about anything. Because if you show or express fear, people will know you're afraid and you will become the victim that you're afraid to become. So never show fear. Don't ever admit to fear. They also told me never show motion of any kind and never cry. And a classic example of this in my family was when my grandmother died and we're all at the funeral and my aunt, who was my mother's older sister, started to cry and my mother turned to me and said, look how incredibly weak she is. She can't control her emotions. Don't you ever be like that. And that's how I was brought up. Don't have emotions, don't cry. In fact, when I was three years old, and I can remember it to this day, it was my third birthday, and my father spent a good 15 minutes taunting me to make me cry so that he could capture it in a picture. And he didn't stop. It actually seemed to take some glee in it until I did cry, and that was the last time I have cried in my life. And I've had plenty of things in my life to cry about. And hopefully one day I can break through that again. 
I didn't know it at the time, but my father was a sexaholic. I don't know what he did, but he had a huge stash of pornography in the house. And like all good sexaholics, he hid it really well. It was on the floor of the closet in my bedroom. So from the age of three, I was looking at pornography. And when I got older, I asked my father, why did you do that? Because he started to do the same thing with my own children and actually bring out magazines for them to look at when they were four and five years old. And I stopped him. And he said, well, my philosophy is that if you look at pornography at a young age, you will never turn out to be gay. And see, I was right. And that's the kind of logic that was going on in my family. My mother was totally emotionally unavailable. We never bonded mother-child. I was an only child, so kind of thought it was unusual that she couldn't even love me. Uh, it was very strange, and it wasn't until I got into this program that I realized she was just reacting to my father's sexaholism. This was the only way she could protect herself was to wall herself off. And unfortunately, I got caught on the wrong side of that wall. Like Sherry's family, there were very distinct messages that we had. The first one was that I'm totally inadequate. I'm never good enough. If I came home from school with a 98 on a report card, my mother would say, did anybody in the class get higher than 98? And if nobody in the class did, she would say, well, when your cousin took that class three years ago, he got a 99. So what's wrong with you? Again, I was also told how unlovable I was. My mother constantly repeated the story, and she even told it to Sherry when we were first going together, that as a baby, I wouldn't allow her to hug me or hold me. Now, I have three kids, and I have three grandchildren. I have never come across a baby that doesn't want to be held and hugged. The only time my father hugged me was probably I was about 45, and he came over to me and he gave me a hug, and then he stood back and he goes, I read that I should do that in Reader's Digest. I wonder what it was like. <laughs> last time. Last time. And the last message was that I'm unworthy. My only purpose in life was to work and to earn money. So from the age of four, they had me working in their store part-time. And by the age of 12, I was working full-time after school. So I would put in a full day of school, and then I would do a full-time job after that. And again, like Sherry's house, we also had three rules. The other one was don't tell, that lies protect you. I had a third grade teacher who asked me one day if I had breakfast in the morning, and I said no. And she asked me the next day, did you have breakfast again? And I said no. She goes, do you ever have breakfast in the morning? And I said no. Well, the next thing I knew, my mother gets called to school and has a parent-teacher conference. My mother came home that evening and literally beat the bejesus out of me because I had told a family secret that she left the house in the morning before I left for school and never prepared breakfast for me. So I was told you have to lie to protect yourself. We talked about not showing emotion, always maintaining control. I guess the positive side of that was I stayed away from drugs and alcohol because that would make you lose control. And the other thing was don't care about other people that your own survival is more important than anything else. 
When I was about 13, I had gotten a volunteer award. Uh, the Y in New York gave me an award. I was one of the youngest people to receive it. A thousand year, a thousand hours of volunteer work in one year. And they had a big dinner, and I was invited, and my parents didn't come. And they didn't come because my mother turned to me and said, that's a thousand hours you could have been earning money. Instead, you wasted it helping people. So these were the messages that I grew up with. Unlike Sherry's house, my parents never fought. I never saw them fight even once. And we used to joke, there was a song uh, on a record that came out, I don't know how many of you remember Mad Magazine. They had a record called, She Lets Me Watch Her Mom and Pop Fight. And I used to listen to that all the time because that was going to Sherry's house. Her parents could have been on TV, extreme wrestling, whatever you want to call it. It was amazing. And the last part of that was I was told, and this was the only time I sat with my parents was at dinner that I had made for them, was that children should be seen and not heard. So again, no way to communicate with my parents whatsoever. So, Mike and I are 15 and 17 respectively, and we meet at a at a Carter Marjong uh, event. Um, at 15, my girlfriend and I had started the first uh, Young Adults Against Muscular Dystrophy in the country. And so Michael showed up, and uh, it was it was wild. It was uh, two wounded souls coming together. And it was pretty amazing because... Um, here we were, um, physically, emotionally, spiritually bankrupt, and what did we think? We thought, wow, we could fill gaps. We were so different, and yet we thought, wow, we, you know, we could fill gaps. And, you know, we used to identify each other as the better half. And then one day I sat and I said, you know what, Michael, with, with, with human beings, Half of a person plus half of a person isn't a whole person. It's like nothing. <laughs> and anyway, we decided to get married. And I was 18 when we got married. He was 20. We were finishing up college. We had six more months to do that. And, oh, by the way, we are married 35 years. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, and um, yeah, that is an accomplishment. You're doing the math now, <laughs> figuring out how old we are. <laughs> and um, so we got married, and we were really running away from things more than running to things. But what was the thing that we kept saying? We can do it better. We can do it better than where we came from. So we were going to have this wonderful marriage. We were going to be wonderful parents. And, of course, all the messages were from what we had previously. So here we go. And we, in the beginning, big disconnect in the marriage from the beginning. Um, didn't discuss our feelings. No real issues were really ever discussed. Uh, pretty quickly started to have children. Michael 
uh, did a lot of travel for his business, and we were distracted, and we fought about the home, about the children, about money, about family, about work, about friends. And then the addictions started to fill voids. And I engaged in any behavior that could be compulsive, from food to drugs to alcohol to sex to shopping. Shopping was a special one. I called it retail therapy (laughs) because what I tried to do with that is I knew that he was very fiscally conscious and I knew it was a way to passively, uh, passively aggressively get to him by spending money. So, of course, the resentment and the anger came in. Mike became a severe severe workaholic and not available. And we lacked intimacy. And the best way I can say it is now we know what that is, so now I know what we didn't have. And... You can truly leave a marriage emotionally and still show up physically for it. And that was the thing that we saw happen to us in our own marriage. And then I hit bottom. I had a very, very successful career for 30 years. I was a leader in my field. I had been president of two companies. I was called a turnaround specialist. I would come into a company that was failing and within a year or two turn it around and make it profitable. It was very much in demand, but again, I was a workaholic. And one day in a company that I had just joined, I was there maybe about a year, with full knowledge of computers and how they work and what people can do with computers, they came to me one day and they said, We were doing some checking on the Internet, and we found out that you've been on Internet sites that you shouldn't be going to for a good 8 to 10 hours a day. And they fired me instantly. And while they were telling me this, somebody else was packing up my office. And within 10 minutes, I was escorted out of the building. I was devastated. I had never felt so much shame in my life. And I had my two-hour commute home, and I'm driving home, not too quickly, because it's still in the morning, and I know Sherry's not home yet, and I'm saying, what should I do? And my first instinct was, I'll lie. I'll tell her that the company had a bad year, and they had to lay people off, and because I'm a senior person, I'm on the high pay scale, they have to let me go. And I'm driving home, and I'm thinking about that. And the more I'm driving, the more I'm realizing how totally powerless I was over this addiction. I knew full well that they could track my Internet activity. I thought I wouldn't get caught. Why was I so special that I wouldn't get caught? But I was caught. So I came home and I told Sherry the truth. Her reaction was pretty much what you would expect. But unlike a lot of people, and I thank God for this, Sherry gave me a chance. She said, get help or get out. 
And the get help was very specific. She said, you need to get into counseling immediately, and you need to join a 12-step program. Sherry's very smart. She knew exactly what I needed. Well, first thing I did, this was a Thursday. By Friday, I had called a counselor, and I had an appointment on Saturday that weekend. And we talked about it, and I admitted to my addiction. And that weekend, with all the excitement of someone who's about to give up their addictions and admit all their faults and say, I'm going to be okay, I did one of the biggest mistakes, another one of the biggest mistakes of my life. I told my two older children and my youngest child. Now, they were adults, but I told them. Not thinking what that would do to them or how they would think about it. To me, it was unburdening my own guilt and throwing it off onto them. And they carried that guilt. Now here, my youngest daughter was getting married in two months. I'm out of a job. I'm supposed to pay for her wedding, which we did. And she hasn't spoken to me since then. And that's something I grieve about every day. God kept me unemployed for seven months. And I say God kept me unemployed because I had seven months that every day I went to a meeting. We're not talking 90-90. We're talking every day for seven months. I had to leave my profession and go into a whole new field. I took a huge salary cut, but it was okay, other than the fact we had to put our house up for sale because we couldn't afford to live there anymore. And our marriage was very, very precarious. I didn't know if we were going to make it or not. But I did get help. And I remember my very first essay meeting, and there are some people in this room who are laughing. I went to Morris Plains, and I was petrified to get out of the car, but I did. And I went upstairs, and I sat down. And here I am, someone who had no friends, someone who never knew how to talk to people, and I'm supposed to bear my soul in front of all these strangers. And God played another joke on me. I was the only one in the room. (laughs) I sat there for 20 minutes, not knowing what to do. And finally, somebody walked in. And I don't think he's here tonight. Probably be here tomorrow. And he started to tell me his story. And I began to feel... Yeah, I think, I think I can talk to this person. And we talked for another 20 minutes, and somebody else showed up in the room. Strangely enough, that happened to be Stephen. And Stephen was doing his routine check of a meeting for intergroup, and just happened to show up just to see how the meeting was going. And Stephen started to tell me about SA and what the program did for him. And he said, I think you should go to the Dover meeting on Monday night, And look for this guy, Leon, because I think the two of you might be good together. Well, that's exactly what I did. And Leon gave me all the tools of the program that I needed. Gave me literature. He taught me how to call people. He got me into the whole step work program. He got me into the Wachong work step workshops. Uh, Just unbelievable sponsor. Unbelievable. Sponsor to this very day, and I love him with everything in me. Because he has saved my life. And I know he is keeping our marriage together. And I am eternally grateful to him for that. He taught me how to develop friends. 
My friends right now are all in the program, and I see a lot of you out there. And believe me, I care for every one of you because I know that you have shown up for me. I also started a spiritual quest because I had no spirit. My father did not believe in God, and that's what he taught me, that there is no God. Well, I didn't take his word for it now because I was in a program that says, you can't do this alone and you need help. And I'm actually giving a break shop on what I did in that, so I'm not going to take up time tonight. But I started to get a spiritual awakening and really worked the program. And something that was always in me all the time, this idea of doing service, the volunteer work I did as a kid, coming to the muscular dystrophy fundraising to meet Sherry, I got back into service again, and it felt good. And it stopped me from thinking about myself and thinking about others. So that, with a lot of prayer and meditation, really helped me get on the road. And my job was to go to SNON. I wasn't a stranger to 12-step groups. Um, I felt really isolated. Um, there was no one to talk to about this particular issue. And I, I went home. I went home. When I went into the room, I went home. And I was so welcomed. And it felt so, so good to be able to talk to people who shared similar experience, strength, and hope. I recognized that we needed to focus on our own recovery, that that was really, really key in the success of our recoveries and also in our marriage. And we also went to couples um, recovery groups. And one of the major things that I learned was that it was important to engage in self-care, that it's about self-preservation. It's not a selfish act. It's not a selfish act. It's about taking care of yourself. And we made a decision to turn to my higher power, to seek guidance, and turn my life over to the care of God as I understood him. One of the things that actually happened was that my fear was now turning into faith. My fear was now turning into faith. And I, I heard somewhere that if you truly believed that God walks with you every day, every moment, you will never feel fear again. And it's a, it's really a motto that I try to, um, stick with and adhere to. I was kind of challenged a little bit from the beginning, the notion of being powerless over sexaholism. Here I was, and I was for such a long time trying to fix him and cure him and uh, control his behavior. And, of course, I neglected my own. You know, we talk about the list sometimes in our groups and that we're on the bottom of the list. I never made the list. I'm on somebody else's list. I was never on my own list. And so it was really an important piece for me just to understand that. I surrendered to God, and I found a new freedom. 
I also found the paradox in the powerlessness over sexaholism, and yet all of a sudden I was beginning to feel empowered as an individual, my inner power, if you will. I am responsible and accountable for my own thoughts and actions. End of story. End of story. And I am free to make healthy choices. I didn't know, as a victim, you don't know that you have choices in the world. And here it is. I found that out. Oh, and sometimes I think, much to Michael's chagrin, I found my voice. (laughs) And I'm not invisible anymore. Short in stature, but not invisible. And Mike no longer needed to fill the void where my higher power now exists. So the other piece about this was having compassion for others and myself. And for me, compassion, doling it out to other people, was certainly easier. It's something that I do personally, professionally, and it was something that I could do for my husband. But to have compassion for myself through this process and to be gentle and kind with myself was a real challenge and a recovery. I've now become a good friend of mine. I gave to everybody for most of my life, and left nothing for me. Now, I give from my surplus, and I can nurture my core self. I think you can already see how blessed I am. (laughs) Probably one of the most difficult things for me in the program was this whole concept of honesty. Not just with Sherry and other people, but with myself. You know, a lie can take care of the present, but it has no future, particularly with Sherry because of her upbringing and the fact that her parents denied her reality so much. I know that is her bottom line, that if I violate that trust and that level of truth with her, it's all over. So I'm no longer living a lie. I've exposed my double life. And I found tremendous courage once I started letting the truth out. It became easier. It actually found the truth was much easier than lying. And this was a whole new realization for me. I didn't have to remember things anymore. I just told the truth. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying this was easy. It's still not easy. There's a tremendous amount of difficulty doing this, and I struggle quite a bit. I mean, I had well over 50 years of self-deception, protecting myself from people and from people knowing who I really was. You know, I see Ben is sitting in the room, and he'll remember this meeting. It was one of my early meetings, and I was sharing, and I said, I asked my wife a question last night. I asked her, why do you love me? And Ben goes, oh, no, he asked that question. (laughs) And Sherry's answer at that time was, I'm not sure. 
And I don't think anything scared me as much in my entire life. I was starting to see and feel real fear. So I needed that courage. But I also learned that to be truthful, you also have to do it with sensitivity. What I had done with my children and being truthful was not sensitive. I was not thinking of them. I was thinking of myself. I was thinking of unburdening my own guilt, and that was a huge mistake. I should have read the white book before I spoke to them because it's right in there. In fact, almost everything I need is right in that white book. Courage has actually been transforming my life. I'm very willing to be open in meetings. I talk about things that are very uncomfortable. I'm very frank about things. And I find that sometimes after I share something, people in the room say, you know, I always had that same problem, but I was afraid to bring it up in the rooms. And I was always afraid to bring that out, and people would know that about me. So it's helping me, but it's also helping other people. And that's really the core of me. I want to help other people because that helps me get better. And changing all these old patterns is helping me get better. There's no question about it. And one of the things that I learned in this program was about forgiveness. And when you forgive, you're no longer a victim. And that was really, really important. It healed a lot of wounds. It healed a lot of wounds. And it's the gift you give yourself. It's not about forgetting. I haven't had an amnesia recently. It's about alleviating some of the hurt, the pain, the resentments that really hurt you in the process. It's about letting go of the past because you can't change what happened. For me, my understanding of it, and understanding, and this is really key, that people do the very best they can with what they know at a particular point in time. And when they know better, they can do better. And in my own recovery and faith in God, I'm able to forgive and love my parents again. I remember sitting in a room one of my own Essanon rooms, and saying that, that I really felt it. And that's all that was left was about forgiveness and love. And also, I pray that our own children one day will forgive us as well. And I have such gratitude for the rooms and for my faith and knowing that this is all part of God's plan for us. This is our, this is God's plan. This was the journey. This is part of the journey. God willing, it's not over. <laughs> but this is part of the journey. And so, just to relay a little story about our house sale. We, um, we sold our house last summer. Big house, and we moved all the furniture out, and we are now, um, the day before the closing, the, the deal fell through, and we are now sitting in a very large house with no furniture, 
And I said, you know what? I think God had a plan. He wanted us to be unencumbered and to keep it simple. (laughs) We keep it simple. And in fact, we were talking about bringing the furniture back. And I said, oh, I don't think I want to be encumbered with all of that. But it would not be nice to have a chair. So the other piece about that is we have exactly what we need today. We have exactly what we need today. If you let God, we have exactly what we need today. And this program really is a day at a time. We get to renew every day. It's 24 hours. And one of the things in our relationship is that we make a commitment to each other based on 24 hours. Not happily ever after. It's about 24 hours. We don't take each other for granted, and we keep it real. We keep it real. We accept who we are as people, and we look to find serenity in our life, peace, comfort, and acceptance of each other. I now have the ability to quiet my mind and fill my heart and soul with God. I know I can't do that all by myself. So I am so blessed to have all of you also in my life. And boy, this could be a really difficult exercise for somebody who was invisible and no voice most of their life. But I have to tell you, I've never felt like I've been around family so much as I have during this short period of time I've had here with you. And what have been the benefits of my own road to recovery? And I want to emphasize it's a road to recovery because I know I'm not there yet. I may have sobriety, but recovery is a lifelong process. And I'm really, really working hard on it. And some days it's a lot harder than others, and some days it's not. It's a constant struggle. But what I've learned is what intimacy is, something I never really had with Sherry before. And it's amazing. And I've learned what the ability to truly love is, not just with Sherry, but I have a relationship now with my grandchildren that I didn't even know was possible with another human being. I mean, just looking at their faces, I see the light of God right there. And we have developed bonds that I was totally incapable of doing prior to this program and my entering into it. I have a relationship with a higher power now, something that I've never had before, and I see evidence every day of his plan for us. Putting us here today to speak to you and just seeing the warmth and the acceptance that we're getting just gives us strength to keep moving on. The freedom from my compulsions is getting better all the time. Again, some days it's really tough. There's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, whatever the arguments are, whatever the rationales are, some days it is tough. But I have a huge support system now. I have a sponsor, I have a co-sponsor, I have friends in the rooms, I have Sherry, and I have the service that I do. And it really does help. I'm able to connect with other people for the first time in my life. I have friends for the first time in my life. People who really care. 
How many people could say if you called someone from Italy and called them in New Jersey in the middle of the night and said, I need help, would be on the phone with you for an hour? That's the kind of sponsor I have. He knew that I needed help, and he stayed on the phone with me, even though it was clear across the world. I've never had friends like that who were really there for you when times are tough. And one of the things is that I wanted to show my children that you can teach an old dog new tricks. I want them to know that I can change, and that means at any point in their life, they can change too if they're not happy with the person that they are. And I think that's my role as a parent that I have to show them that because I didn't show them a lot when I was deep into my addiction and I was, an abs- I was totally absent for them. I owe that to them. And again, the joy of helping others, particularly without any expectation of a thank you or gratitude or sometimes even the person knowing that I did it, brings a kind of inner joy and peace that I've never known before. And it does help me stay sober. So I really pray that our share tonight about honesty, openness, and willingness gives hope to all of you that the benefits of recovery are attainable and they're really worth the efforts. May God bless all of us on our journey. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.